You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Kevin Orr. Kevin is an American Paralympic athlete and now wheelchair rugby coach. As an athlete, he won two bronze medals at the 1988 Paralympics before transitioning into coaching wheelchair rugby in 1992. His team, Lakeshore, then went on to win five consecutive national titles. This led to him being appointed Team USA coach, where he won a silver at the 2002 World Championships and a bronze at the 2004 Paralympics. In 2009, he was appointed coach of the Canadian national team and led them to a silver medal at the 2012 Paralympics and gold at the 2015 World Wheelchair Rugby Challenge. He is presently the head coach of the Japan Wheelchair Rugby Team, where he led them to a bronze at the 2022 World Championships. Kevin has great energy and his attitude is a wonderful example to all of us. Some of the highlights from the interview for me were how he is most proud about encouraging people to just take part. Because in parasports, success on the court breeds success off the court. And Kevin shares some terrific stories to illustrate this. 
In fact, one of those stories he shares is about encouraging someone to give up an electric wheelchair because he felt it would ultimately kill them, and how that person's move into a manual chair ended with them competing in a world championship team. And where he talks about wanting to leave a legacy of inspiring the next person along to become a mentor for someone else so that people with disability become productive members of society. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives, and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business School's MBA. And now, please enjoy our interview with Kevin Orr. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Kevin Orr, good evening, my time. I think it's good morning, your time, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Very excited to talk a little bit of wheelchair rugby with you, or as they do call it in some parts of the world, chess on wheels or even murder ball. But Kevin, why don't you start by just telling us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? I live in Pelham, Alabama, a little bit south of Birmingham. I'm originally from Illinois, south to get away from the snow, and I've coached wheelchair rugby around the world, I guess. And you're just back from the World Championships in Denmark, where you were coaching Japan. Yes, we ended up at the Bronze Medal World Championships. A little disappointing uh, semifinal once again, and you know, credit to the United States for their win over us, and Australia winning the gold medal. Overall, it was a great World Championships. And I imagine it would have been pretty fun hanging around Denmark too. The beer there is pretty good. Denmark's a beautiful country, and and the city where they hosted it in Villa really embraces Paralympic sport, which is really cool. And the crowds were phenomenal. And to be able to play Denmark in the bronze medal match with a full capacity crowd was just, it was awesome. Oh, fantastic. Look forward to hearing all about Japan. Of course, you've coached the USA and Canada, and we're going to get into all of that as we go along. But Kevin, I wouldn't mind just starting by asking you about the, the great coaches that you've met, because if my research is right, you've been to six Paralympics as either an athlete or a coach, as well as multiple world championships. So I imagine you've seen some good coaches up close, some great coaches up close, and probably some that sit probably below that. So I'd like to start by just asking you, what do you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Well, I had two great coaches when I was a student at the University of Illinois. Brad Hedrick, who ended up coaching the United States wheelchair basketball team, and Marty Morse, who was he's a phenomenal Paralympic track coach. And I had both of them as really mentors when I was a student, and I played wheelchair basketball, and I was a wheelchair track athlete. So I really had firsthand knowledge of them, and they, they both had a different style about them, and they were the first two world-class coaches, really, that I met. And then as my experiences growing through Paralympic sport, really the things that I've learned from a lot of the coaches is really the respect that they have for the athletes 
as well as the expectations they have that a lot of times far exceed what people think they can do. And you see that throughout the world as far as the great coaches is they see potential in people and really they they use their ability to maximize that potential to turn it into whatever the person can be. And that, that can be in sport and that can be in life. And I think the lessons in sport really transfer to life and vice versa. Kevin, talking about potential, you have a twin. And my understanding is that your parents raised you exactly the same, even though you were born with a congenital condition that meant you uh, didn't have the use of your legs. But it must have, growing up with this expectation, or rather this view that you can do anything, must have really shaped your view when it comes to physical disabilities. Could you tell us about your upbringing and how it's uh, evolved to influence your role as a coach? I have an older brother that's really close in age as well, and having an identical twin, both my brothers don't have a disability. My mom and dad really never treated me as a child with a disability. And early on, my mom got me involved with swimming and really just tried to, whatever my brothers were doing, uh, really encouraged me to, to try the same things. My dad was runner-up in state and wrestling. So I guess he was my first kind of mentor as far as sport because, you know, he at a high level in high school. And really learning from those kind of tricks was important. When I swam, I'd be the person kind of looked at differently where all I wanted to do was compete like my brothers and whatever sport that they got involved with. Sometimes there were safety concerns. Growing up, I used crutches and braces to get around most of the time instead of using a wheelchair. But really, whatever my brothers tried to pursue, I was right there along with them. If they played basketball, I ended up being the manager of the basketball team. If they played football, I was the manager of the football team. You know, if they were involved with swimming. Wrestling was the first uh, sport that I, that I actually got to compete where I convinced my mom, hey, uh, my brothers were doing it. I want to give it a go. So they reluctantly, my mom said, okay, uh, joined the Dundee Highlanders, which was a club in the suburbs of Chicago. And they just took me on as what weight class are you going to be in? And, And really taught me as a person based on my weight class and not my disability. And that meant a lot to me because my brothers never treated me differently. It was other people that always tried to be differently. And then the coaches that I had with the Dundee Highlanders, they're like, hey, we just want you to to compete in whatever weight class you're going to compete in. And then let's go and then figure out how we're going to how we're going to do the sport. And, and to me, that was a big step as far as that goes. Ended up wrestling until my sophomore year in high school. And then I learned about wheelchair racing. And it was the 1984 Olympic exhibition wheelchair races of the 1500 meter and 800 meter where I learned about the University of Illinois. And then I guess my life changed because I saw people that had something similar to me and I could explore the things just like my brothers were pursuing their dreams in sport. And and probably even took it uh, a step further. And, and it was really their encouragement. When I would try something, you know, they they wouldn't let me quit. They wouldn't let me focus on what I couldn't do. It was always, well, what can we do? And and that that was even in backyard. I mean, I grew up in a community of Algonquin, Illinois, and small neighborhood. Um, a lot of kids my age, we would play tackle football in the backyard. We would play baseball. We'd play whatever games that kids play. I was included with everything. It wasn't, well, Kevin can't do this or Kevin can't do that. It was, all right, let's just go out and play. And even when, you know, you'd select teams, I was selected, you know, like you do in your, your neighborhood. It's like, I'm going to take this kid or I'm going to do this, whatever. I was always selected, I'll probably last. But I learned from that as well is that, hey, you know, it was about your ability to play or perform whatever task it was going to be, because that's how selection was done. And that 
that meant a lot to me as far as they weren't trying to exclude me. They were looking at me for whatever abilities. And I also was involved with academic kind of things. So like I did Scholar Bowl and I did some of those kind of things. And at those things, I would be selected almost first because of the academic abilities that someone had. So a lot of times it was more about the ability to, to perform a job than it was about whatever kind of situation was that people could defer. And that's really what my brothers and my mom, it was all about an I can attitude and not what you couldn't do. So you you competed as a para-athlete yourself and you take this I can attitude and you head off and become a coach. And in 92, you found the Lakeshore demolition with just five players. But in seven years time, in 99, that team wins the first national championship and then goes on to win five consecutive titles. And I'm really curious, Kevin, when you started that team, when you were starting that club, what were some of the early decisions you made that ultimately drove the success that you enjoyed? As a 22-year-old coach, I, I had opportunity to start a wheelchair rugby team, which I actually got involved when I was a student at the University of Illinois. They, they had started a wheelchair rugby. And when I moved to Birmingham, one of my, my goals was to actually start a wheelchair rugby club. I did my internship in 1990. Um, I was involved as a wheelchair basketball player. I won four national championships at the University of Illinois. I was a Paralympic bronze medalist in 1980. And a lot of people looked at me, starting from my sophomore year in college, from a leadership standpoint. I mean, I was named as a captain of our team early on, and I always wondered, well, why? But people would follow what I would do. So when I started the team when I was 22, a lot of people wanted to follow along what, what I was trying to accomplish. And the idea was, I didn't want to start a rugby club just to play the game is that, hey, if we're going to compete, let's compete. Let's pull out your potential. We had some guys that they just wanted to, you know, it was a social kind of deal. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I had to make a decision is, do I want to be an athlete or do I want to be a coach? And it was kind of a, it was a tough time for me because, you know, my expectation were that I was going to go to Barcelona um, and follow up the bronze medal uh, performance in Seoul and continue keep competing. I'd even consider going back to school and get a degree and do some of those kind of things. But I had an opportunity to work with children. I had an opportunity to work and start a wheelchair rugby club and do the things that I'd always dreamed of. Opportunities that I, I wish I would have had when I was a younger child. And really, that was what I tried to teach to people is that you have this opportunity. And, and early on, I had two young men on my team. Uh, one guy is actually a month older than I am, uh, but he, we were young at the time. He was a Division One basketball prospect. You know, he'd been recruited by Nolan Richardson and Dean Smith and some of those guys, six foot eight, power forward from Alabama. And then he was in a car accident and he was playing wheelchair basketball. And I had the opportunity to meet him and get him involved with wheelchair rugby. And there was another guy who was six foot six, was playing community college basketball, and he was pro motocross racer and he broke his neck in a pre-accident before a race and he was a quad and the idea is okay so i had the six foot six and a six foot eight guy it's like man we can make this you know it, it it's one of those things that you look at human potential and you go all right these had the they had the caliber to compete before they were injured and now it's my responsibility to get them back doing what they were doing prior to their injury and really that was the impetus to starting the team and building the team it was about high performance and getting people back to doing what they do and even just having five players it's like we've got to figure this out and and we would go play the best teams and we'd get blown out by those teams but the idea of to play the best teams is i wanted to learn what does it take to be the best and our players would get frustrated. I'm like, just keep learning. Just keep learning. Let's take it all in. And then started in 92. And then we 
made our first nationals in 96. You know, we just started working our way up the ladder. And I can be fairly intense as far as as a person. And, you know, there are some other players that, hey, I want to come for you. I want to. So it's like, okay, if you want to come play, you know, these are the expectations. The expectations were the same, regardless if you are a new player, an elite player, whatever, is that I think being fair is the best way that you can be a coach. And it's like, hey, we've got to train. You've got to, you've got to look at your nutrition. You've got to get the right equipment. You've got to do all those kind of things, and I'll help where I can. But it, it was setting an expectation about who you were and what you wanted to be. The other cool thing about the Lure team, it, it's something I'm probably most proud of. It isn't about the championships. It isn't about anything. When I started the team, there was only one person on the team that was in. He was getting his master's degree. The other players were just living on Social Security. And they're like, well, I can't do anything. When I left the team in 2009, every player was working or going to school. So we had 18 players on our roster and all of them were succeeding in life. People were getting married. People were having families. People were doing, they were doing life. And to me, that was the biggest thing that wheelchair rugby could do was, you know, you had people that were, they, they didn't think they could do anything. And then you, you do this, this, this sport. And that, that's one of the cool things about Paralympic sport. Success breeds success is another uh, one of those words that I like to to follow is that whether you're successful on the court, you're successful in life. If you're successful in life, you can be successful on the court. And it just there's the transference of all those abilities. And sport teaches that as a lot of people in this sport in this podcast will know. But I think that's one of the cool things about the team is that as we started building success in life, that expectation about, hey, we can better, we can be better. And it actually made people want to, I always had some hills that we would train and do some, some hard. And I would have to encourage them to do it. They, they were like, are we going to do hills today? Are we going to do this today? You know, just trying to push the bar higher. And that was the, the, the Lakeshore demolition team was special. And I think, you know, winning five championships in a row and, and 10 national championship appearances in a very short period of time. I think we had, nine championship appearances in a row, then a year off. Uh, we ended up third that year. And then the next year we ended up second. So we had a string where I think we, we appeared in 12 national championship finals in 13 years, which was, uh, it, it's about excellence, but it's excellence on and off the court. Kevin, you said something fascinating at the start of your answer then. You said you didn't know why people wanted to follow you. Have you figured out after all these years now why it is that people are attracted to your leadership style? I still don't know. Uh, I know I scare a lot of people away. There's a lot of people that when they talk to me, they think I'm yelling at them. I'm a very direct person. I'm very straightforward. I, I have no filter. I'll tell you exactly what I'm thinking. So I, I kind of wonder, well, why do people follow me? Because you know, a lot of times people want a, they want a sugarcoat an answer. They want people to tell you what you want to hear. And a lot of times I'm the person that's exactly opposite is I'm going to tell you what I think you need to be doing, and it may not be the the softest answer you'll hear. So I'm still fascinated that, and and then as my career has progressed, I mean, whether it be the local Lakeshore team and then coaching the U.S. team and then doing wheelchair track at the international level, then Canada wanted me to be their head coach there for seven and a half years, and then Japan wanted me to be their head coach. And the irony with that is I was the U.S. coach and lost to Canada. Then the Canadian Peterson asked me to be a wheelchair track coach for the U.S., was with them for four years, and then the team that I lost to in Athens asked me to be their head coach. And then... Ultimately, the team that I lost to in Rio was Japan, and then they asked me to to be their head coach, and then we won a world championship in 2018. And I mean, it's it's been a weird for sure. Is that you know I'm not sure 
why people are drawn to what I do or how I respond or how I act. I'm still fascinated. I, I've read leadership style books and I've tried to, to change, but I, I am who I am. And I guess I, I'm trying to learn and try to be better. But at the same time, it's it's been fascinating for sure. Well, let's keep going with the story because you've raced ahead a little bit there, but I think there's a few things I'd like to ask about the journey of those stepping stones. So from the Lakeshore demolition, you end up coaching the USA national team. You take a silver medal at the world championships and a bronze at the 2004 Paralympics. But then what's fascinating is you were let go. But I've read where you talked about that being a good thing in the broader context of wheelchair rugby. Now, can you tell us why you think that? Or why you thought that at the time? Sure. Well, the U.S., when I took over the team, had never lost a major international competition. And, and wheelchair rugby is a relatively young sport. I mean, it was founded in 1977. It had its world championships, first world championships in 1995. It was founded in the U.S. in 1988. Then actually in 1996, it was an exhibition sport at the Atlanta Games where the U.S. won gold, and then they won in Sydney. So they had two back-to-gold. They won world championships in 95, 88, and then I was the next coach. And then we ended up losing to Canada and lost to them in pool play, then ended up losing to them in the final, which is shown in murder ball, then ended up losing to them in the semifinal in Athens and let go. And U.S. was... They were the team to beat, and everyone was kind of in awe and shock with that. And I was the young, you know, 34-year-old coach that, like, all right, I was the scapegoat, the reason why we lost. But for the sport itself, I think it was good because if the U.S. had just continued, I, I don't think it would have drawn the interest around the world and the growth that it saw after that is that teams actually thought, hey, we can win and we can do things. The other thing that occurred at that time is that other other countries really started working with their sports systems, high performance systems. So Great Britain, Australia, Canada worked with the Australian Institute of Sport, the Canadian Institute of Sport. I'm not sure what it's called in Britain. But really looking at Paralympic sport as high-performance sport, and I think by losing those games helped propel wheelchair rugby where it's going to be right now. Is And I think there's still a ways for it to go, but instead of it just kind of being a good old boy, you know, guys going out drinking and you know just being a party league and recreational sport, is by losing, giving other teams the, the thought, hey, this is you – know, other teams have a chance. Allow the sport to grow in Powell – uh, Zerbanowski, who was the president of the, at the time it's called the IWRF, the International Wheelchair Rugby Federation. He told me that when he put the medal around my neck, the silver medal around my neck at the uh, world championships, when we took silver, he says, this is going to be something good for the sport. And I'm like, man, I want to chuck this medal in the ocean. I don't want to see it. But he was right. I think the idea is that the growth of the sport, the international game, I think has benefited from the diversity of, of that. And the Athens games being won by um, New Zealand, I think it it made a connection with, with world rugby, with the sport of able-bodied rugby, because you had New Zealand, who apparently has been a powerhouse in rugby. Now there's a tie with wheelchair rugby, and there's a tie with 15s rugby or whatever, is that they got some relationships going on that end sport. And now there's a more formal relationship between world wheelchair rugby and world rugby. Um, the person who was the CEO of world wheelchair rugby came from world rugby. So the idea of losing a game had a lot deeper connection than I, I think most people in the sport probably don't even realize. So after that loss, 
the master coach, Peter Erickson, then asks you to join Team USA. And we've got an interview coming up soon with Peter, and he really is a guru of athletics coaching in both wheelchair and non-wheelchair. So Peter asks you to come along and be the wheelchair racing coach in the lead up to the 2008 Summer Paralympics. And I'm wondering, you know, you've gone from one sport to another. How did you adjust your coaching style moving from a team to more of an individual sport? Well, it's funny because I started in individual sport, really, uh, as a track athlete. I knew Peter when I was an athlete. I mean, I, he coached against me, so I, I knew him. But really what he was looking for is he was looking for mentors. He was looking for people to mentor athletes, make them feel at ease. You know, a lot of them have their their own personal coaches to prepare them for the games. But at the games, basically, you know, it's a coach's responsibility. Okay, I've got to get you to staging. i got to get you into the call room. I've got to get you to the warm-up track. You know, do a couple starts. Make sure your equipment's in order and doing all those kind of things. So the idea is just giving some words of encouragement. By Peter asking me to come, it showed me that that being a coach wasn't necessarily having to be the tactician. You didn't have to be the physiologist. You didn't have to be those kind of things. All those, those things are helpful. Sometimes it's giving an athlete a pat on the back, giving them a look in the eye and say, hey, everything's going to be all right. Go out and get them. And that's kind of how my experience was there. And he was there just a couple of years. And then Troy Angle actually came in. So having Peter and then having Troy, Troy was the, the coach at Army. But, but going back to Peter, some of the cool things that he had is he had the other coaches that he had brought in. Is he brought in Joaquin Cruz, he brought in Al Joyner, and he brought in Kelly Carter. So you had two Olympic gold medalists. You had a collegiate coach. Uh, he played, a, uh, he was a track athlete at Auburn, got to know him really well. So he was bringing in professionals to bring some legitimacy to Paralympic track. And it's, it's great that Joaquin is still involved with Paralympic racing as one of the Paralympic track coaches. And being able to sit in the same room and go to coaches meetings every morning and talk about, hey, we want to make sure that we're getting our athletes there on time, make sure that everything's covered from, you know, whether it's from recovery, whether it's from just preparation and, and just making sure that we're taking care of the athletes. Those are things that really Peter taught me as a wheelchair track coach. And Troy really helped maintain that. I mean, he kept the relationship with the Olympic coaches, as well as the Paralympic coaches, he would have some other coaches come and meet the Paralympic. And that was a change of the times for Paralympic sport, because when I competed in Seoul, I mean, good luck. I was fortunate that my coach, Marty Morris, was there. He wasn't my personal coach at the Paralympic Games. We had other coaches that were assigned. So I kind of learned what I needed to do as a coach from what didn't happen when I was an athlete. And then having Peter just encouraging, hey, we'd have a staff meeting, make sure you take care of this, make sure that you have this going, get your athletes to the warm up. make sure that, you know, that they're taken care of. And that went a long way. And then when Troy came in, he's like, oh, well, we have this murder ball coach with us. And it was just like I was part of the fraternity. And I'm like, sometimes I didn't, uh, still fit, don't feel like I belong. But those great coaches, they, they just made you feel like, hey, you have something to contribute and we want to hear it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. 
Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So you go from Beijing and then you become the head coach of Canada. More success follows. A silver at the 2012 Paralympics and gold at the 2015 World World Chair Rugby Challenge. And I'm wondering, what changed in your leadership style in this second time as a national head coach? The evolution, I think, as a coach has been, when I was the coach of the U.S. team, I thought I had to be in control of everything. When I went to Canada, even going from track, because I learned a lot from Peter and from Troy, how to kind of manage coaches. Um, So when I was the Canadian coach, it's like you're putting other professionals in place. Is that You want to let them do what they do well. So it was less micromanagement of, so if we had a massage therapist, if we had a, a trainer, we had a exercise physiologist, if we had an analyst, whoever was with us, it is instead of me telling them what to do, I was more into learning what they were doing to how they could benefit our team as opposed to me telling what, them what to do. So the idea was that, it was a more open style of coaching, I think. Ultimately, you know, I handled things when we were on court. A lot of times behind the scenes, they would just kind of do, it's like, hey, you guys you do what you do. And I didn't have to put a hand in everything. And I, it was it was comforting. And it actually, I've, I've evolved even more now. Because when you can let people do what they do well, then they're valued. more they're valued, the better they can work for the athletes. And ultimately, that's what our job is, is to let the athletes perform at their best. And by having less control or, or I've got to have every hand in, in this, yeah, you have expectation on the athletes, but overall, if you express what that expectation is, and they can also come and share. The other thing that we did with the, the Canadian program is not only looked at the, the coaches that we had, but we had access to some of the hockey coaches and players in the world. So I had an opportunity to meet the women's coach. She's a gold medal winning coach. And then we had Canadian. So I met with her because they went with the expectation that they were supposed to win. They didn't. And they went up and, and they won. So when I first came on board as the Canadian coach, we ended up not performing very well at the first world championships. I was with that team. I met with her. And then we had some of the female players from that team that came and met with our players. So they could meet player to player. I met coach to coach. We talked about, what are you feeling? How how did you go through this? A lot of the very similar kind of things that you deal with. That was one of the, again, it was taking less control of the situation. It was, okay, what kind of things do we need to, to do? What kind of things don't we need to do? And then let's let the players do what they do. And I think that's when we allowed that to happen, is where our success came is we ultimately ended up with a silver medal ended up as the the second team in the world that i've coached to, to get back to number one in the world and that was to 2015 was a special year i mean we won the world wheelchair rugby challenge we won para pan am games beat the united states we came from behind we were down by four and came back to beat them by three in the gold medal match under a packed crowd at in toronto which was great having a home crowd Zach Middell was on the front page of the newspaper and the Toronto newspaper the next day. And to me, the height of Paralympic sport, when I started coaching the Lakeshore team, part of it was, hey, I want to push. It's not only pushing your athletes, but I want to push the sport. I still want to push the sport to the pinnacle of sport. If people can revere wheelchair rugby like they do football around the world, Premier League. 
you know, and they go, oh, wow, you know, these guys and start calling people by their first name. If you can say Zach or Riley or you can over, they start calling guys in wheelchair rugby by their first name, which a lot of people in wheelchair rugby, you know, they know who Zach and they know who Riley are. No questions asked. The idea is that, hey, make them a worldwide name. The end of the Pan Am Games for Canada in 2015, the, the headline was Zach Stahl, folks, and it shows Zach carrying the flag for Canada. That was a special, special moment for me because it was not only winning the gold medal, but it was identifying it. Canada had put wheelchair rugby on the front page of the newspaper because of the performance. Zach had a tremendous games. To me, that was pretty cool. Young kid. I mean, he was still, he's still young, but really just coming into his own and carrying Team Canada, pretty special time. So from Team Canada, the story gets even more interesting because you're now the head coach of the Japanese team and you do this from your home in Alabama while the Japanese players themselves are spread all across the country. I'm wondering, how do you manage to build a connection with such a dispersed team? Well, wheelchair rugby, so United States, Canada and Japan, they all operate decentralized training systems. So now what I'm doing in Japan really isn't much different from what I did in the United States because players, when they were in the United States, when I coached them, they they were all over the country. And then we would get together for monthly training camps. Same thing in Canada as pit players were dispersed all throughout Canada and would try to recruit all throughout Canada. And then moving to Japan, it was the same thing. Is the, the biggest difference was the language. And it still is. I can speak and understand a little bit of Japanese now. I mean, I've been with the team for almost six years now. Nihongo chotodaki wakatemasu. That means I understand a little Japanese. But the idea is getting players to understand what are you supposed to do for your decentralized training um, and giving them a roadmap. Because sometimes in Paralympic sport, the people don't know what to do. And the idea is just trying to help. I did that in Canada. So basically replicated what I did in Canada and doing that now in Japan. And really recruiting has been the, the biggest challenge. Well, recruiting for Paralympic sport is always a challenge because you're trying to find people that are targeted disability groups for your specific sport. So And then if they're not taken by another sport, because there's only a finite number of people with disabilities. So you're, you're looking at, you know, they, they could be competing in athletics. They could be competing in swimming. They could be competing in uh, a, a number of sports. So the idea is getting the right people that have the kind of mindset to play wheelchair rugby is another part of that. And then trying to find high functioning people. And one of the ways to recruit was going to be using the Paralympic games that were held in Tokyo last year. But then when no crowds could come, it's challenges. I like to, like with Zach in Canada, as an example, it took four years for me to actually get him to come to a, a training camp. Shane Smith, who is part of their roster, I started recruiting him uh, in 2009. He did not actively become part of the program until after I left. So seven and a half years later, I mean, every time I would go to Toronto, I would call him, I would I would encourage him. You know, and then he's like, I want to play wheelchair basketball. I want to be the on the national team. And I worked with the national team for wheelchair basketballs. I'm not going to strip your program. I'm trying to to rob players. Let's try to find the right fit. And speaking of that, there's a Bacha player. We did a Bacha exhibition at a prospect camp. And Allison Levine, who was at our prospect camp, she tried Bacha. She went from wheelchair rugby to Bacha and became the number one player in the world in Bacha. So the idea was not to just rob the system, but you know, in, in Canada, the population is 35 million. So the number of people with disabilities is going to be significantly less than it would be 
in Japan or the United States. So athlete transfer is a big part of Paralympic sport. You know, so me coaching wheelchair racing or wheelchair rugby or whatever sport it is, the idea is that, hey, you're, you're trying to find talent that fits for a particular sport. So with athletes dispersed throughout Japan, the idea is that, okay, let's get them to train. Let's get them to understand what we're doing. And then when we get together with camps is we can just focus on tactics. We can focus on, you know, we don't have to work on conditioning. We don't have to work on how's your body going because they should already have that part. And you can work with personal trainers and you kind of sub that out for a lack of a better way of saying it is that they can work on the motor. And then when you get them together, then you can work on their brain and get them uh, working synergy wise and even be somewhat of a sports psychologist. And and that sometimes is is the role that I play is that, hey, I'm the tactician and I'm the I'm the person that is really just trying to get them to perform with whatever lineup is going to make them do the best that they can be. Kevin, I've heard you say that wheelchair rugby has helped people change their perceptions and expectations. And I was wondering if you had any advice for other people when it comes to trying to change the perceptions or expectations they have of the people they're leading. Again, I think that's one of the things that makes me a little bit different is that when I see a person with a disability, especially the people that qualify for wheelchair rugby, I mean, to be able to play wheelchair rugby, you have to have usually a cervical spinal cord injury. You have to have impairment in your upper and lower extremities. So maybe not full hand or arm function, maybe no trunk function or minimal trunk function. So they would be considered more severely disabled than a lot of people. And and the general public would probably go, oh, poor people. And and I don't, I guess the way that I was brought up is you've got to teach an I can attitude. So the idea of sport, one of the fascinating things that got me into wheelchair rugby was when I was an athlete at the University of Illinois, we trained at a PT gym for the university. And People would come in to work out who had disabilities. So not only athletes, but you would have other students with disabilities that would come work out. So there was this one guy, he's a little bit older than I was. He was a veteran and back in school after he had a spinal cord injury. So he had a high C5 uh, spinal cord injury and he was a power chair user. And I, with my good old humor, I'm like, that electric chair is going to kill you. You know, people call it a power chair, but I'm like, I, I had to use the, hey, this electric chair is going to kill you. And, he, you know, he'd take two two pound weights and he'd be doing this kind of stuff. I'm like, what's that doing for you? You know, I'd see him because I'd work out. He'd come in to work out. The key is, is he was consistently coming in when I was there. So encouraged him to try a manual chair. So the, the time that he tried a manual chair, they did a two man lift and put him in a chair. And it took him about 30 minutes to go from baseline to baseline. And then... Around a little bit after that time for about a year, you know, he'd come and push. So we'd be at wheelchair basketball. We'd have volunteers that had helped him get in his chair. He, he gradually started getting going. And that was about the time that uh, the University of Illinois had a wheelchair rugby program. And this gentleman started playing and we started basics, passing the ball and pushing and doing all those kind of things. Long story short with him is eight years later, he had made the U.S. team in wheelchair rugby as a .5. So he competed on the world championship team in 1998. But that's not the most impressive thing with this guy is that he was a power chair user who drove his car from his power chair. So he had a chair that would drive in and lock in and he would drive his, his van with that. When he graduated from the university, he started selling durable medical equipment. And he was down at a wheelchair rugby tournament when I had first started coaching in South Georgia, in Valdosta, Georgia. And in order for him to get there, he had to fly into Atlanta. So he was living in the Chicago suburbs and he flew from Chicago to Atlanta. And then he rented a car, used portable hand controls, used a manual chair. And this is a guy that was a full-time power chair user, pretty dependent. And then he's going from using a, being fully dependent on that power chair and, and 
needing someone to help him get around to this wheelchair rugby teaching him that he could be independent. And so he's doing a sliding board transfer into a, he rented a Ford Thunderbird using portable hand controls. And I'm thinking if it hadn't been for wheelchair rugby, this man would not have been there doing that. And to me, I learned what the power of sport was, is that sport teach you that you can do anything that you want to do. And it changes your expectation, your feeling about that you want to do things. I mean, you can see the way that people embrace sport in the world. So, you know, whether it's, and to me, I think there's cultural relevance to sport. So you know, depending on where you are, like, you know, I talked earlier about Canada with hockey. You can probably say the same thing about Sweden, Finland, and England, it's football. In South America, it's football. A lot, of, a lot of the world is football. In the United States, it's American football or basketball. In, in the Caribbean, it could be baseball. I mean, there's there's a lot of those kind of things that you go, but it's not only the people involved that it gets excited. It excites other people around them. Being in Denmark at the World Championships, to see people just chanting, you know, basically trying to scream the, the Danish team into a medal. It was about pure enthusiasm and love of sport that kind of propels people to want to do better in life. And, uh, you know, they identify with sport. They identify with certain figures in sport, which is pretty cool. And, and to me, it's it's transcending now into Paralympics. So the idea is that if you can see a person, you know, if it's Yukinobu Ike, our captain, you know, you have other people that they want to be like him. And, you know, they want to work full time and they want to be an athlete and they want to have a family and they want to do things and they can go, hey, Paralympic sport, yeah, it's cool. Hey, he's a world champion, but he's also – a very successful man in life. And to me, I think that those are things that a lot of times, especially in the Paralympic realm, sometimes people think they have no hope and sport allows us to teach people what they can do. And they go, wow, hey, I, I can do more than what I ever thought I could do. And they can excel at it too. And then they can compete at a high level. So, I mean, it's it's so much more than just, hey, I, you know, I play this great game. And there's that side of it too. So it's not all about being an inspiring kind of person. It's about excellence. You talk so eloquently about human potential and this whole concept of an I can attitude, which I can see connects to the way you were brought up. So Kevin, maybe just one final question. And before I ask it, I'd like to read a great quote from you, if I could, just to give it context. You say, whether it's doing kids programs or teaching world-class wheelchair rugby, the idea is you're trying to bring out human potential. So whatever the circumstances, if they were in a car accident, had a spinal cord injury, or had some sort of amputation. The focus is, what did you do before? Let's get that going. I think it it's a great quote because it sums up this whole philosophy you've got about just getting on with it. So I guess the question is, in the distant, distant future, when you've probably coached another couple of countries at the Paralympics, what would be the legacy that you'd like to leave behind as a coach? Well, I hope it's not just me. Wherever I've left, I, I've left the program in good shape. So when I coached the U.S. team, James Gumbert was the head coach for 16 years. So leaving a legacy of excellence where where I left. When I left Canada, Patrick Cote, who was my assistant. So James Gumbert was my assistant in the U.S. Patrick Cote was my assistant in Canada, and he's continuing to coach and continuing the legacy in Canada. A, a lot of the players that I've coached, have gone on to coach other people. But it, it isn't always about, it, it's about mentoring people to bring the next people up because it's more than just, it, it's more than just you. So it, if you're going, okay, well, it, oh, well, he's won this world championship. He's won this uh, world championship. He's won this Paralympic medal. He's done 
all those kind of things. The idea is whether it's a, a child, if, if we can teach people to be, if, if they can mentor the next one and they can bring in the next one. And David Wilsey is also a, another coach on the Canadian team. And, and he's a person, he can find the, the next superstar in Canada potentially. He'll go to a rehab hospital. A lot of, a lot of times when a person has a significant injury or they have a disability, a lot of the healthcare system, all they are really focusing on is this is what he can't do, or these are things that you're going to have to modify or whatever. And if you have a person that can go into the room and say, look at all this, look at, look at these things that you can do. To me, that's the legacy that you want to leave behind is that it's, it's you're giving people, you're giving people hope. It's one of the things that sport does. I mean, you know, you're, you're hoping that your team wins. You're hoping that your team succeeds. You're hoping that the team, you know, it's, it's, it's about living to the best of what you have. I mean, a lot of times, not everyone's going to go out. You know, I, I haven't won a Paralympic gold medal, uh, but I don't think that defines who I am. The idea is that, you know, by having successful human beings who I've, I've mentored to be the best that they can be, if they're reaching whatever their potential is, if they never make a national team, if it's just getting out of the house and going to work, if it's just going, you know, being able to, to get out of bed, in some cases, I mean, to me, that's that's what it, it is. If it's giving people hope that they can do something, I think those are some lasting legacies that you have. You know, some of the other things, too, is is pushing our sport. Paralympic sport, I think, is it, it's our responsibility is a lot of times people think, well, you know, we, we want to see uh, isn't it great to see them competing? One of the things that you may not know about me is I was the person that introduced the shot clock and the 12 second rule in wheelchair rugby. And I made a comment at a general assembly in the United States that said, this is going to encourage more people to want to watch the game. It's going to, and then someone said, well, what people? I said, well, that's, that's, you're limiting, you're limited on what you can see this sport's potential be. And then to see a packed house in Denmark last week, maybe 1,500 screaming Danish people cheering for Denmark in our bronze medal match. They came there to watch sport. And you know, with that 40 second clock, with the 12 second rule, the excitement of the game, the people are watching sport as sport. And to me, that's a legacy. That's what the Paralympic movement is about. It, you know, one of the, I guess, one of the new mantras of world wheelchair rugby is we want to win. Or they said, we're not here to inspire. I think inspiring isn't a bad thing necessarily. If it's encouraging someone to reach whatever their human potential is, that's good. But yeah, people want to win. I, I want to see people win at life. I want to see the employability of people with disabilities go up. I think people that are involved with athletics are higher likely to be employed than people that are not. But I think the unemployment rate of people with disabilities is still probably around 80%. The idea is that's sad. And I, I think sport actually teaches people of, of what they can do. And, and that's a legacy that I hope to continue to push is, hey, we want to see people working. We want to see people being productive members of society, people getting married, people having families, doing those kind of things. I mean, it's so much more than sport, although it's great to win uh, at the highest level on top of that. But again, it's about pushing people to what they can achieve. Kevin, it's, it's a great answer. It's so inspiring, this idea of mentoring to bring the next people up and, and helping people reach their human potential. I think that's a great place for us to finish. And I just want to say thank you for your time tonight and hearing your story as it's already taken you to, to three countries and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's more ahead of you. So thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Kevin Orr. I hope you got a lot out of Kevin's story. 
and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own locker room, boardroom or dinner table for discussion. When I listened back, there were so many gems. But a couple of additional ones that stood out to me were how the great coaches see potential in people and they use their ability to maximise that potential. His childhood, which taught him about the power of an I can attitude and how this, coupled with your ability to play the role that is asked of you, will influence whether you are selected or not. His views on being sacked as a coach and how this ultimately became a good thing for wheelchair rugby and his evolution as a coach from someone who had to have a hand in everything to someone who realised that by letting people do what they do well, they'll feel more valued and as a result will work better for the end athlete. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. The interaction with the people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.